You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Friend, I've got to tell you, my flabbers are officially gasted after researching this topic. Our episode today falls squarely in the realm of world history, and also just like straight up messed up history. And you are going to see why as we uncover the deadly history of spice. And just know, you will never sip a pumpkin spice latte or season your food again without thinking about this episode. I am sorry. So with that in mind, look lovingly into your spice cabinet or your spice drawer or think of your fondest seasoning-related memory one last time because I'm about to ruin it. And let's get to it. I guarantee in your house now, you have what would have been an absolute fortune in the 1600s. Even if you're not an adventurous food seasoner, I know you have black pepper. And boy howdy, was that stuff expansive and super uber hard to get. Spices are such an innocuous and regular part of our life now that it's hard to believe that they literally changed the course of the entire world. And that is no exaggeration, dear one. Not even a little bit. Evidence of spice use can be seen in archaeological evidence dating back to the Neolithic age, suggesting people used herbs and spices to season their food. The Egyptians used herbs and spices for just about anything you can think of, and they were hugely popular in the first century AD when a trade route to India was found by the Roman Empire. And in the Middle Ages, spices were used for medicinal purposes. From the 11th to the 13th century during the Crusades, spices were treated like jewels and were status symbols for the elite. But it wasn't until the 15th century that spice would begin to literally change the course of human history. For years, Europe only had access to spice through their very mysterious Arabic trading friends who would not reveal where they got these bits of aromatic gold. The Arabic traders would tell the Europeans all sorts of wild stories about giant birds that lived in enormous trees being the keepers of cinnamon sticks or the dangerous and deadly flying snakes that had to be chased away with fire in order to pick peppercorns. And this totally worked in deterring the Europeans from trying to go find the mythical spice islands for themselves. By the 13th century, Venice had established itself as the place to buy and sell spices. And it was through Venice that Europe got all of its spices. And good golly, friend, was it good to be a spice trader back in the Dizay? Because you could charge pretty much whatever you wanted. Because you were one of the only suppliers Europe had. Spice prices got so high that by the 15th century, even the richest of the rich 
were having a hard time getting their hands on those delectable aromatic delicacies. So they decided to do something about it. And that something was to begin the era of European exploration. And I refuse to call it the era of discovery, like a lot of historians do, because Europe wasn't discovering shit. Not a thing. (laughs) All of the places that were, quote, discovered had been inhabited for forever. And they were getting along just fine until Europe decided it needed cheaper nutmeg, black pepper, cinnamon, and cloves. Black pepper. I would argue that just about every household in the entire world has black pepper in some form, whether cracked, ground up, in a pepper grinder, or whatever, what have you. You have pepper. I know you do. And people love pepper. I love pepper. Europeans in the 15th century also loved pepper. And they loved pepper so much that they decided it was high time to get on some boats and find out where this magical little black pearl came from because they were tired of being upcharged by the middleman. So a bunch of European countries simply hopped into their boats and went to Salem, but failed miserably. Looking at you, Christopher Kadumass. <laughs> you like that? You like what I did there? Christopher Columbus? Christopher Kadumass? <laughs> Anyways, <clears throat> I digress. But the Portuguese heard a rumor that pepper was grown in India. And they decided to learn from the mistakes of the other countries and sail the opposite way around Africa to find these mystical pepper islands. But King Manuel I was not too hopeful because people had been failing for like the last 50 years. So he sent Vasco da Gama on a ship with a bunch of criminals to minimize the loss should they not return. Da Gama and his motley crew set sail in July of 1497. And goodness me, 10 months later, they found that route to India because India was where black pepper came from. I mean, it still comes from there, but that's like the original place that black pepper came from. They expected to find primitive and uncivilized farmers just moseying around some pepper plants, but they were sorely, sorely mistaken. India was the bee's knees and living their best life. They had been growing and trading pepper for the last, like, 3,000 years and knew very well how much their pepper was worth. It was literally called black gold. And this woefully ignorant assumption on Portugal's part would come back to bite it in the tush. When de Gama, quote, found India, he landed in Calcutta in the western coast of India, or on the western coast of India, which was hella rich. You see, the Zamorians, or the rulers of Calcutta, had grown the small port town into a global spice superpower. They controlled most of the international sea trade of spice that went from India to the Middle East and then to Europe. And when de Gamo showed up to the top Zamorian leader guy's court with trinkets of fabric, hats, and sugar, de Gamo got literally laughed out of court because anything short of actual gold was deemed unacceptable and didn't even warrant a further conversation. 
But da Gama was a persistent man and eventually found his way into their good graces and established trade with the Zamorian leaders. Three months later, Degamo left to return to Portugal with pepper that was worth 60, 60, 60 times the cost of his year-long voyage. Ooh, he had a warm welcome when he got back to Portugal. And eight years after Degamo found the route to India, the land of the black gold peppercorn, Portugal set up its first fort and sent a viceroy to India. But Portugal's initial success in the spice race would be short-lived. They opened the door for other European countries, but the Dutch would come in, guns a-blazing, and literally start a war over spice. This episode is sponsored by She Podcasts Live. She Podcasts Live is the world's largest gathering of women podcasters, audio content creators, storytellers, and more. From October 11th to the 14th, join thousands of other women and gender-neutral people in D.C. for an empowering podcast gathering like no other. She Podcast Live will be bringing a diverse and inclusive lineup of speakers, presentations from top microphone producers, and industry leaders like Podbean, Spotify, and many more. During the day, get educated, and at night, enjoy the best parties, including an introvert-extrovert party, a garden party, and a slumber party complete with movies, snacks, and pajamas. For more details and to buy tickets, head to ShePodcastLive.com and use code FLH, FLH standing for For the Love of History, for $50 off your ticket. Thank you again to She Podcast for sponsoring this episode. When you think of the world's most infamous colonizing countries, I'm sure you would think of America or England or maybe even Spain. The Dutch are not necessarily the ones that come to your mind first. But let me tell you, Maflabbers. Maflabbers were gasted when I read about the Dutch and what they did for the sole control over the spice trade, and specifically when it came to nutmeg. Nutmeg was a highly sought-after spice because in the 15th and 1600s, it was believed to be the cure for the plague and have the ability to balance your humors, and that's what medicine was all about, all about balancing the humors. And people found out it could get you high. And I don't care how far back you go into history, people like getting high. And we like to think that party drugs are a modern thing, but they are most certainly not friends. So when the 
aristocracy, all the rich people found out that nutmeg could get you high and keep off the Black Plague, they were like, yes, get us all the nutmeg. So for these reasons, nutmeg was a hot commodity. Nowadays, you can find nutmeg all over the place and in almost every supermarket. But originally, nutmeg only grew in one very specific place. The group of islands known as the Banda Islands in Indonesia. The entire world's supply came from these small islands that were free and controlled by the local people who were benefiting from this very lucrative business. And this, my friend, is the essential motivator for the age of European colonization. There were exotic, profitable spices in faraway places that Europeans really badly wanted because, number one, they saw other cultures as inferior to them and thought it was their right, nay, nay, their duty to control other uncivilized, heavy on the air quotes, people. And number two, they wanted money. Money. They wanted to fund their terrible shenanigans. The 16th and 17th century are often called the golden age of colonization or the golden age of discovery. And I hate those phrases. And I think they're gross because one, golden should never be used as an adjective to describe colonization. And two, like I said before, Europe wasn't discovering nothing, not a dang thing. Oh, oh, you discovered a place where people already lived? Go home. You're drunk. I can't with you. Anyways, I digress. Back to (laughs) the Dutch. So at the end of the 16th and beginning of the 17th century, the Dutch were going all out with colonization, but they did it differently than the rest of Europe. The Netherlands were not trying to convert people like Spain or France or Portugal. They were here for money and business. Yeah, they had missionaries, but that wasn't the main focus. After seeing how well the Portuguese had been doing in Indonesia since 1512, the Dutch were like, um, excuse me, let me get in on this spice trade. And so they did, but the Dutch did something that other countries did not. In 1602, they started the Dutch East India Company, or VOC, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this Dutch word. Okay, hold on. Okay. Verenigde Oostindische Kompang. The VOC. The Dutch East India Company is what it is in English, and it's the VOC because that's the, those are the Dutch words. The the first letters of each Dutch word, the VOC. We're just going to call it the VOC, okay? Okay. So colonization was an expensive and risky business. And to lessen the risk to the individual or to the crown, the Netherlands created a company where lots of people could put in a little money and reap the benefits when it was making money, but not fall into debt and fail if it wasn't making money. And capitalism really hopped off with the VOC. It changed the trajectory and way we did global economics. The VOC first landed in Indonesia in 1595, and small wars between Portugal and England and the Netherlands began as the Netherlands tried to control the entire spice trade of all the Indonesian islands. The VOC was a terribly cruel 
organization and treated the Indonesian people like animals and not human beings. But the nightmare of the VOC really began in 1621, when Jan Peterson Cohen became the governor of Indonesia. This man is truly, truly the leader of the sentient garbage piles that roamed the earth during the era of colonization. Columbus, awful. Cortez, disgusting. Degamo, ooh. But Cohen! He took one look at the Banda Island colony and chose violence. He thought the way the VOC was running the spice trade there could be streamlined and made, quote, better. And his version of better was to organize a genocide of the Banda Island people. This dumpster fire of a human hired Japanese mercenaries to come and kill the leaders of the tribes of the Banda Islands. Which, can we pause? How weird is that? The Dutch go to Indonesia for nutmeg and then hire Japanese mercenaries to come kill the Indonesian leaders. What is history? I swear, you can't make this stuff up. It is weirder than fiction. Cohen hires these Japanese mercenaries and decides to kill the leaders of the Banda people in front of the Banda people, and then began killing off the Banda as they resisted. He did unspeakable things to the Banda people, and the population went from 15,000 to just 1,000 in a horrifically short period of time. After the vast majority of the Banda people were murdered, he then brought a bunch of enslaved people from Java to be the workforce alongside the remaining Banda people. And this bullshit worked. Production of nutmeg went up, sales went up, and the Dutch finally got the Portuguese and the English, except for one tiny nutmeg island called Rune. So to back it up a little bit, in 1620, there were 39 English dudes on this island and a bunch of Indonesian allies, and the Dutch started a war with them. They simply could not deal with any threat to their total monopoly on the spice trade. So they had a war that lasted 1,540 days, known as the Nutmeg War. But after the English leader of that island was killed, the English surrendered and signed a treaty with the Dutch, officially handing over the island of Rune and therefore securing the Dutch monopoly on spices from 1621 onwards. The spice trade had the world in a chokehold for hundreds of years. Europeans and Americans did unspeakable things to fellow human beings all for some nuts and some spices. But these lucrative plants were smuggled out of their home islands, and spices started being produced in other countries closer to home. The power of the colonizers began to dwindle in the 18 and 1900s, with many spice countries fighting and gaining their independence. And most of them have gained their independence from these colonizers. But there are still those alive today that remember what it was like to live and suffer during the deadly international spice race. We have come to our final thought, my friend, and we are ending on a funny note. 
on a positive note because today's episode was a lot. We've been doing quite a few of these heavy episodes lately, but if you're always happy after you learn about history, then you're not learning the right stuff. But we can have a little chuckle right now because I'm about to tell you of the great Buddha Tooth Bamboozle. (laughs) So, in the Kingdom of Kandy in Sri Lanka, there were a ton of cinnamon trees. And the Portuguese were like, um, let us have those. But the people of Kandy were like, nah. And basically bullied the Portuguese out of their kingdom so that they could never set up any plantations. And because of this, the Portuguese were super duper frustrated. And in one last attempt to control the people of Kandy, they stormed a temple that holds to this day the tooth of Buddha. And it is one of the most sacred locations for people of the Buddhist religion. Their idea, the Portuguese idea, was that if they held the tooth for ransom, the people of Candy would have to do what the Portuguese said. But here's the thing. They went to the temple. They stole a tooth. But that tooth was a fake because the people of Candy were like, yeah, clearly they're going to try to steal our most sacred thing, so we're just going to put a fake up there. And... The Portuguese never took the real tooth, so the people of Candy never became subject to Portuguese rule. They stayed free forever. And now there is a festival called Perejara that celebrates not only the tooth of Buddha, but is a big middle finger to the Portuguese for trying to colonize the people of Candy. And it is a reminder that they never ever did, and they never will. Well, my friend, that is all for today. I just love that final thought. It was a good one. I love a good F.U. party. (laughs) And if you do too, consider sharing this episode with the next person that you meet in an elevator. Or if talking to strangers is not your thing, you can share this or any episode on your social medias which is a fantastic way to support For the Love of History. And if you haven't already, please leave a rating or review because we are so close to our 100 reviews and ratings goal. We just need a few more. And if you'd already done that and you'd like to help me make the best content that I can, consider donating to the Coffee and Research Fund or picking up some cool merch from the merch store. Also, thank you so much to our newest patron member, Sarah. You can become a Patreon member today. There's a link in the bio. It's super fun. So Sarah, thank you. And I cannot tell you how much your support means to me. And finally, don't forget you still have time to submit questions on Instagram or email for the bonus birthday episode with my mom. And that is simply enough talking today. So take good care of yourself, friend, drink your water, do something that makes you happy, and I will see you in our next episode. We are going to have a special guest for our season finale, and we're going to talk about Joan of Arc. So until then, I'll see you later. Bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. <laughs>